Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In late January, the House of Commons unanimously voted on a resolution proposed by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to call on the government to, quote, use all available tools to address the proliferation of white supremacists and hate groups. The motion included a specific focus on designating the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization. The rise of white supremacist and hate organizations poses a threat to Canadians. These groups and their members must face consequences for their actions. They ought to be resisted and, ultimately, dismantled. But how should that be done? What risks attend to the expansion or further entrenchment of the national security state? Should white supremacist groups be designated as terrorist organizations? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Harsha Walia, director of the BC Civil Liberties Association and the author of the forthcoming book, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. Let's start with a distinction or two to set up what we're talking about. So there are a few debates happening here that sometimes get conflated. For instance, one, should groups such as, and including the Proud Boys, be designated as terrorist organizations? Two, if they should, who should be in charge of that designation and by what process? You know, for instance, is it risky to have politicians doing it uh, in the heat of the moment? And three, are there other approaches we can take to resist and overcome extremism outside of anti-terrorist laws? Those are the three sorts of debates that I'm, that I'm seeing. Am I missing anything? No, that sounds about accurate. And these things are getting all jumbled up. So I, I want to spend the next little while trying to, to, to get to the heart of the matter, what each of these is about. Uh, and I want to start here. So in a piece you wrote recently, you argue that, and I'm quoting, calling for the inclusion of white supremacist organizations in the fold of anti-terrorism, or our anti-terrorism legal infrastructure, will not work. You call it a fundamentally... A regressive legal structure that targets Black, Indigenous, Muslim, Arab, Sikh, racialized, and left communities by its very design. Can you run us through that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of what's happening is, as you said, there's a number of debates. And I, you know, I think one of them is this kind of semantic debate, which is, you know, can we or can we not, or should we or should we not call white supremacist organizations terrorist? Um, and I think, you know, that's a that's a fine debate to have, but I don't think that's the crux of the issue. The crux of the issue is, uh, you know, what do we do about white supremacist organizations in relationship to the actual legal infrastructure, the juridical infrastructure uh, of the national security state, right? So we're not just having a kind of linguistic debate about what is or isn't terrorism. We're talking about a set of policies and a set of laws that have solidified and expanded in the post 9-11 climate. Um, and, and under the guise of the war on terror, right, which really has been a war of terror uh, with massive local and global impacts. Uh, and of course, you know, globally, it's meant military occupation and warfare and more. And locally uh, in the Canadian and, of course, the U.S. context as well, it's meant the expansion of um, the national security state, which has, if we were to generalize, there are so many laws. And that's the other important piece, right? There is not one singular anti-terrorism laws. There are so many parts of 
um, the criminal code, so many parts of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, parts of the Customs Act, um, and many more that essentially have bolstered the national security state. And if we could generalize, you know, these sets of laws and policies at a procedural level um, have subverted the minimal standards of presumption of innocence, violated the right to due process because a lot of these proceedings are carried out in total secrecy. They authorize arrest and detention without charge or arrest simply by association. Um, and these are, you know, some of the pillars of this process and the ways in which they overwhelmingly and disproportionately impact racialized communities, specifically Indigenous, Black, Black and Brown, Muslim, Arab, Sikh communities, is by its very design. Um, and, you know, one thing that I don't think many Canadians know, for example, is that in the post 9-11 climate, one of the very first uses of anti-terror legislation was actually a raid here on the West Coast carried out by the RCMP's INSET team, the Integrated Security Team, um, against West Coast warriors. And they had a, a raid in Port Alberni um, where they raided the West Coast warriors and, and you know, declared them to be a security threat, uh, including the fact that they were armed. And of course, you know, warrior societies have a tradition of, of being armed um, in self-defense and also often, you know, not armed um, in self-defense, but armed uh, in the sense of owning hunting rifles um, as, you know, as part of uh, a longstanding cultural, um, a cultural form of enacting food sovereignty and food security. Um, and so, you know, that is, that was one of the first uses of anti-terror legislation against the, against Indigenous communities. We've seen that continue with, for example, Project Sitka, um, you know, Unistoten and Wet'suwet'en land defenders, um, warriors in Mi'kma'ki being constantly subjected now to this omnipresent surveillance, which of course has been since time immemorial in settler colonialism, but heightened under the domestic terror framework. Um, and the other thing that I would point to is that, you know, one of the key features of anti-terror legislation and its impact on racialized communities, specifically black and brown Muslim communities, is its convergence with detention and deportation, right? So what happens when someone is deemed a terrorist? Um, if you were to look at the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, that actually means that you suddenly face expedited deportation processes. You could be detained without charge, all on secret evidence, simply because you are affiliated or assumed to be affiliated with a terrorist entity. So by design, it is it is impossible to separate out anti-terror legislation um, from the ways in which it has been enacted specifically to violate the civil liberties, the human rights of racialized communities to detain, to surveil and to deport. Right. Deportation is a fundamentally racial regime. It overwhelmingly impacts racialized communities. Um, so these are just some of the ways by its very design um, it impacts certain communities um, and is, has was intended and structured to create the foreigner, right? Like that's what the terrorism agenda and counterterrorism agenda in the post 9-11 climate was. It wasn't to deal with violence or public safety. It was to create the idea of the foreigner and the suspicious community and the suspicious person. And that construction of foreigner is, is a, it's, um, it's not a legal framework it's a it's a deeply racialized sociological framework is the broader argument then that we ought to be dismantling this framework in the first place and we can deal with groups like the proud boys and, and other extremist right-wing groups 
through other mechanisms? I mean, because I, I see not only the potential for expansion under the current framework, but mm-hmm. further abuses. And I also see the, the, the sort of myopia or short thinking of a lot of folks. And it reminds me of, and I'm going to betray myself a little bit here as a recovering Catholic, but it reminds me of Robert Bolt and his play, A Man for All Seasons, about Thomas More, in which there's an exchange between uh, a prosecutor and Thomas More. He says, you'd cut down every law in England to get to the devil, wouldn't you? And he's, and the other guy says, um, yeah, I'd cut down every law in England if it meant getting to the devil. And Moore says, and what would you do when the devil turned around on you? All the laws being flat. And I, and I think a little bit about this when we rush to expand these frameworks, thinking that, well, they couldn't possibly blow back on us, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. That's for others. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder then how we might think about the framework as itself something that ought to be dismantled vis-a-vis other tools. I mean, what else is there either in existence currently or that could be developed to address white supremacy, far-right extremist groups? Yeah, I think, you know, that's an important point. And I think um, people are addressing this, I think, from different positions. You know, one thing that has struck me is that there are a lot of um, white progressive, white liberals, um, you know, white social Democrats who have jumped on this kind of bandwagon of let's designate white supremacists as terrorist organizations because they haven't had to live under and don't even know what the impacts of the national security legislation have been. And so I think that is, you know, understandably, this is that there's the escalation of violence that happened in the United States, um, you know, the escalation of white supremacy and white supremacy organizations in Canada has caused necessary alarm. Um, but the expansion of the national security framework without understanding what it is, the impacts it's had, the fundamental structural flaws of it, um, it's just, uh, it's naive and a, and a mistake. And of course, to think that we can just suddenly turn the entire apparatus around and say, okay, we've been targeting the wrong people. Let's now just target the right people, but use the same framework, which is racially underwritten by violence. It just simply won't work. Because again, you know, as I mentioned, one of the key features of the of anti-terrorism legislation is deportation. So where are you going to deport white supremacists to? Um, it just simply doesn't work. And so you know, that's not specific to the listed entities, but it's this broader question of how by its very design, it will not address um, homegrown white supremacist violence. Um, And absolutely, I mean, my social media is just filled with people who have been subjected to the surveillance of the post 9-11 security state who are terrified that even if, you know, magically one organization like the Power Boys gets dissolved and dismantled, and that's assuming that they won't just regroup and reform, right? So some magical wand has been woven and that has been resolved and that's already stretching it. Um, there's a great fear that this will justify and normalize the national security state, that more money will go into it, more infrastructure will be built around it, and it will be normalized and will now suddenly be seen to be a kind of colorblind institution rather than the fundamentally racist institution that it is, right? So the work that people have been doing for 20 years to challenge the national security apparatus will just get, that work will go back uh, because now it'll it'll be given cover. Um, And, you know, there are still other 
organizations on the listed entities list. There are overwhelmingly Muslim organizations on the listed entities list. What about them, right? Are we not? Are we? Are we going to then fight for them to be delisted? Um, and that's part of what's missing in this conversation, right? So the rush to add more organizations to the listed entities list does not address the fact that there are still. Um, you know, over 50 organizations on that list who are not white supremacist organizations. So we end up in this, this kind of hamster wheel of trying to reform a fundamentally flawed institution and framework. Um, the other two things uh, that, that come to mind for me is, you know, and this is perhaps less of the concrete, but I will address the other tools. But I think it is important to say that one of the problems um, that I have with the kind of let's list white supremacist organizations is that it doesn't address, and I know it's not capable of addressing, but it, it, it becomes a bit of a distraction from the more substantive issue of tackling white supremacy. And I know that people will say, you know, well, putting them on the terrorist list is just one tool, right? Like we agree we need to dismantle white supremacy, but we also need to deal with violent extremism. And those are two different things. Um, and that may be the case, but the amount of resources and the amount of attention that is going into these immediate moments of panic and fear detracts from the fact that there is no shortcut to dismantling something that is so systemic. It means that we have to address the fact that there are members of white supremacist organizations who are lawyers, who are teachers, who are our neighbors, who are in law enforcement, who are in the military, right? Like, um, that is that is the reality. It is baked into institutions. It is baked into our educational system, um, and of and treating white supremacy as kind of this fringe, or treating white supremacist organizations as this kind of fringe, marginal um, part of our society means that we then um, are kind of let off the hook from the hard work of recognizing that they are but a symptom, right? So what are we doing about addressing it at its root? And that is not, um, that cannot be simply answered by a kind of policy, a temporary or one-off policy fix. Um, to your question about what other tools exist, I mean, one I'd say is that, you know, we can't deal with violence in any situation by just, by only addressing um, the violent act, right? We have to address, again, the underlying ideological underpinning of white supremacy and whiteness. But also when it comes to um, actually addressing and forcing some accountability for acts of violence, I mean, of course, we have existing tools to deal with assault. We have existing tools um, to deal with physical violence, right? And what has frustrated me the most is uh, about 10 years ago, um, there was a, a white supremacist organization, which is actually now a listed entity uh, called Blood and Honor. Um, and Blood and Honor was a white supremacist organization. And, you know, what came in, in Vancouver um, in the year, I'm trying to remember what year it was, 2012, there was three men, uh, Robert DeChazel, Sean Donald Finley, McDonald, and Alistair Miller, who had known links to Blood and Honor, and they were charged in a number of violent assaults and hate crimes over a span of two years, which included setting a Filipino man on fire on Commercial Drive, one of the busiest neighborhoods in plain sight, um, as well as violence against a Black man, a Latino man, and an Indigenous woman. Um, and these are hate crimes that were documented for years. Nothing happened. Um, and in 2012, uh, you know, they were finally 
they were finally charged, not under terror legislation, but, um, you know, within the, the context of the criminal code uh, for these kinds of offenses. And what was so frustrating, which is, you know, most survivors frustration with the criminal justice system and what actually makes people abolitionist more than anything is you realize that the system is not designed to actually hold people accountable who are perpetrators of violence. Um, but in principle, uh, those tools exist, right? Those tools already exist. And what is arguably more insidious about the listed entities process is that it doesn't actually criminalize anything. It just relates to civil remedies and civil forfeiture. Um, and so it is not actually a crime to be affiliated or associated with a listed entity in terms of criminal sanctions uh, for those who actually think it or want it to be stronger. Um, arguably, you know, existing criminal code offenses would have more teeth. So there's a kind of, again, this uh, kind of cognitive dissonance between people thinking this will somehow have more impact when it doesn't actually make anything a crime versus the existing procedures um, of the criminal code. How, how much of this is political theater? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, part of this is, is we, we adopt the framework and then sort of forget about it. It lets us off the hook. And I wonder how much of this is just a political theater. It, it enables politicians to seize the moment to say, we're doing something. Uh, the motion passes uh, in the House of Commons unanimously to, to ask the government to designate Proud Boys as a terrorist organization and others. Uh, and then we sort of say, okay, well, now the police will deal with it and we walk away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and and I, what troubles me in part was it was Jagmeet Singh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's motion, first of all, that it, it came from the left. And, I, and I'm a little bit worried that then the, once the political theater, or once the curtains close in the political theater, we just sort of walk away. I mean, do we risk that here? Is that is are we seeing that already? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the ways in which it's uh, clearly political theater, and you know, again, very um, notably interesting in stark contrast to the listed entities kind of process generally, is of course, as we know, you know, a House of Commons motion does not really mean anything when it comes to listed entities, right? It doesn't make it an official designation that still requires the Minister of Public Safety to gather all the evidence um, and to make a recommendation to the governor and council. And what really struck me ab- about this kind of political theater as you, as you talk about it is that you know, when it actually comes to the listed entities process, um, and again, you know, noticing that this isn't an actual, this isn't part of the listed entities process is to have it go through the House of Commons, is that the listed entities process is actually a deeply secretive process, right? Because the Minister of Public Safety usually gets secret advice from Canada security agencies and CSIS, and then they make a recommendation to the governor and council, who then approves the listing. And the groups who are added to this list are usually are not informed in advance, right? So the Proud Boys kind of like get the special treatment where they've been given a sort of a heads up <laughs> that this is happening. <laughs> and, you know, most listed entities, uh, you know, again, especially racialized, overwhelmingly Muslim organization on the listed entities are never actually given the chance to speak to or respond to the allegations against them, right? When the decision just kind of meets the standard of, quote, reasonable grounds to believe that a group will engage in terrorism, the decision itself is based on completely secret information, usually, including information that can otherwise actually be inadmissible in court um, in other instances. So part of the smoke and mirrors for me about this was like, this is actually very different (laughs) than 
the process for listed entities, right? This is not how it would usually happen. Um, and that is that is part of what's disingenuous about this all. What do we say to people, I mean, especially people on the left who opposed the expansion of the national security state in the United mm-hmm. States in the after, uh, aftermath of September 11, 2001? They sort of argued against the Patriot Act. They argued against or bemoaned the NSA surveillance scheme in the aftermath of Snowden. And now we're turning around and saying, let's take the framework that we've adopted that is in the spirit of the Patriot Act and similar national security measures from the United States and apply it to white supremacists, because this is a group that we quite rightly, incidentally, yeah. uh, uh, deeply oppose. I mean, how do, how do you, re- especially on the left, how, what do you say to someone like that? I mean, because it, it's stunning to me that there is no recognition of the inconsistency there, or to the extent that there is recognition, it says, well, if we're going to apply it to these people, we might as well apply it to these other people too. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I'd say to people on the left is what that obscures is again, that law is not a neutral terrain and the national security regime is fundamentally not a neutral terrain, right? Like that you just simply cannot turn around and, and um, kind of reform and rejig uh, this part of the state. Um, again, you know, if you think you can use the, the terrorist legislation against the Proud Boys, where's the state going to deport them to, right? Where's What's the end goal of this legislation, which is built around expulsion and marginalization? Um, so, you know, that that's kind of my, my, um, my response is that it really assumes the possibility of uh, racial equality, right? Like, this kind of response of, oh, well, for this long, the national security apparatus has just been targeting the wrong people. We just need to turn it around and have it target the right people. But again, by its very design, it doesn't do that. Um, And really, you know, I think one of the clearest examples that we can draw from, and this comes for me, from my experience, I mean, I've worked in the anti-violence feminist sector for decades. Um, And, you know, in the 80s, which predates my time in the sector, but in the 80s and 90s, there was a very robust um, debate and assumption amongst, um, you know, in the anti-violence sector, amongst people supporting survivors of domestic and gendered violence, that, you know, we know that police and prisons and law enforcement don't really help survivors. Um, but let's see, let's see if we can turn the system around and have that part of the carceral state work for survivors, right? Let's, instead of putting, Um, survivors of domestic violence into prison because that's what was happening, right? Cops would come in responding to a domestic violence call if they responded at all um, and put women who defended themselves into prison. And so there was this kind of thing like, let's turn the system around and make it work and put the bad people in jail, right? Um, And even if you're not an abolitionist who, you know, fundamentally believes that the carceral state is not the solution that it enacts enacts violence, um, it is impossible on the ground to not see how that argument has failed. You know, even though on the books we have laws that supposedly speak to and strengthen protections for survivors of domestic violence, that system has grinded on and battered women are still imprisoned. Indigenous women and trans and two-spirit people still are not protected by police, right, are over-criminalized and under-protected by the police as the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls has made abundantly clear. Um, And yet what happens is that carceral system continues to criminalize those it always intended and was designed to criminalize, right? Overwhelmingly Black and Indigenous and 
poor people and homeless people and trans and sex working people. Um, and that's the same thing that will happen with the national security apparatus, right? There might be this one kind of stunning example, the same way that it, you know, and that's the Proud Boys. And that comes even though they've been violent for so long, even though Canada's, you know, own spy agencies have for a long time said that the single largest domestic threat is uh, is white supremacist organizations, not the stereotype of Muslim organizations. And so this kind of moment will pass. Um, but the normalization of the national security apparatus in the long run will have continuing detrimental impacts on the very same communities that white supremacists target. I think that's the heart of the matter. You know, I keep, uh, I was listening to you and I kept thinking of this scene from Arrested Development where I, you know, I did a PhD in political science and have thought of, studied Canadian politics for the better part of 20 years. And yet my frame of reference is arrested development. But I, <laughs> speaking of arrested development, right? But <laughs> I, I'm thinking of that scene between Tobias and Lindsay where they're having marital, marital problems. And he says, you know, as a, as a therapist, I've, I've suggested to lots of couples that they explore an open relationship uh, where they sort of remain emotionally committed, but explore other folks. And, and Lindsay says, well, did it work for them? And Tobias says, well, no, it never does. They delude themselves into thinking it might, <laughs> but it might work for us. You know, it seems to me that it's the same sort of thinking that, well, it, it will be different for us because we'll make a state of exception within the state of exception and that mm-hmm. it won't get out of our control, despite the fact that it's secretive, despite the fact that just, even though it's been politicized, it will remain heavily technocratic Mm-hmm. And don't worry, we could control it. It seems to me like there's a there's a profound sense of hubris there, mm-hmm. and that when when things go pear shaped as they invariably do, all the politicians who are lining up today to support it and all the supporters online and elsewhere will will have vanished, mm-hmm. leaving people high and dry. Right, mm-hmm. and, and on top of it all. I'm trying to think about this this framework and, mech- and these mechanisms in the context of the 21st century because it seems to me even more terrifying in an era in which communications technologies and, and other sort of carceral uh, techniques are becoming more sinister. I look mm-hmm. around at the RCMP and Stingray, uh, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, or the NSA surveillance apparatus, for that matter. I mean, do you when you're looking at this framework and you look at it years on? Are, do you share the concern that it's going to become, I don't want to be over melodramatic here, but, but bordering on totalitarian mm. in its potential reach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I will answer that question, but I, I can't leave Such as it is, that's a rambling. <laughs> no, but I was going to say, I can't leave unaddressed, David, that open relationships do work. <laughs> but yes. maybe. For... <laughs> yes. Um, but no, and I, I think it, um, I think you're right, right? I mean, that kind of dystopian reality is 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 very real. Um, and again, you know, if we think about technological surveillance, we already know, for example, that facial recognition technology also has baked into it a biased algorithm that has time and time and again proven to be anti-Black. Um, and absolutely, I think you're right on, which is that the expansion of, of the carceral state writ large, whether we're looking at policing, whether we're looking at border enforcement, whether we're looking at kind of child apprehension services, whether we're looking at national security and Canada spy agencies, um, absolutely layering that power with even more power and discretion and, you know, just the authority to much more 
um, rapidly in implement uh, mass surveillance is frightening. And we already know that in the case of indigenous land defenders, for example, right? Like just the massive tracking that has been going on um, in the kind of social media um, kind of era and amplified with these these um, technologies of algorithmic policing, of algorithmic surveillance, of technological databases, of, you know, companies like Clearview AI, um, not limited to them, but, you know, just because they've been in the news um, and have, you know, now slowly departed from Canada only after, a, you know, a massive um, privacy investigation that they were facing. All of this uh, is incredibly troubling. And again, you know, it becomes a matter of political will and political resources, right? If we grant the national security state and sanction them and say, okay, yeah, you're doing a good job. We're just going to trust you're out there going and getting white supremacists. Why would we believe that? They have long known <laughs> that white supremacists right. are the number one domestic threat. You think, you know, that they're going to use those technological um kind of gadgets that they gain to track white supremacists? No, they're going to be tracking indigenous land defenders as they've always done. They're going to be, you know, continuing to surveil in mosques. Um, they're going to spend money on quote unquote, de-radicalizing Muslim youth. Nothing, you know, no resources will go into denazification of young white men. Um, you know, that, that is what's going to happen um, if we continue to allow this kind of creep and think that this this system will magically turn itself around. Um, and I think that is what is most frightening, right? Is this one moment. Um, and as you said, that, you know, that moment will dissipate, people will vanish. And the people who will be left um, with this, with the impacts of this uh, massive apparatus, but that will be invisible. It will be invisible, it's invisible to us because of, um, you know, the nature of, of technological surveillance. Um, and that's what's quite frightening. I, I was thinking back when this hit the news, I was thinking back to what Soden and, and remember when there was a conservative member of parliament who rose in the house and, and said, should the blockades be considered terrorism? And then said, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not asking this. This is, this is just one of my constituents uh, mm -hmm. who, who have rose this question. I mean, as if the, he didn't choose to raise it in the House of Commons. Okay. Um, I'm just, I didn't ask it. I'm just giving you the megaphone. And that was the first thing that came to mind. There was that the naivete that that um, this sort of thing wouldn't be disproportionately applied, for instance, to indigenous people. And and I mm -hmm. had completely forgotten about the uh, West Coast Warriors example. Mm -hmm. How do we, those who want to push back against this, do so in a, in an effective way politically? Because I mean, obviously, you're opposed to white supremacists. I'm mm -hmm. opposed to white supremacists. As you said, you've been working for years on the ground, doing the real work in communities, pushing back against uh, this sort of thing while while standing up for racialized folks, for standing up for Muslims and so on and so forth. And yet grandstanding political types sort of waltz in and say, what are you, soft on extremists? And and how do you push back against that when it when you become sort of caricatured as not caring about far right extremism because you ex you resist or oppose the expansion of the carceral and security state? I mean, how how, how do you push back against that politically? Yeah, I mean, and I think for me, you know, that's precisely the reason why I push back um, against this is because for me, it's not a uh, 
a kind of linguistic debate. It's not an abstract debate. It's because I have materially witnessed and being alongside people who have been impacted by the national security state for two decades. Like I literally have supported dozens of people fighting deportation who have been found to be inadmissible in Canada um, on so-called security grounds, right? Including people who actually first went through just the terrible process, the dehumanizing process of becoming a convention refugee in Canada, right? That is already a system uh, steeped with barriers. And then after that, realizing that, oh, actually, we found you to be a convention refugee, but you are inadmissible because we think you're a terrorist threat or we think you're a security threat to Canada. And we don't have to tell you why. We don't have to tell you right. why. Um, or actually, in one of the biggest contradictions that really has driven me um, just so bonkers for decades is because sometimes the very same reason people are found to be refugees in Canada, for example, because they are a member of an organization that is being persecuted, of a leftist organization like FMLN, um, who are facing persecution um, in their home countries. So they're found to be convention refugees on the basis of being political prisoners, of being political dissenters. Those very same organizations are then on Canada's terrorist list um, or considered by immigration and security officials to pose a threat to Canada, right? So on the one hand, it's like, oh yeah, you're part of this persecuted group that is a political, that is a leftist political dissent organization. But oh, we think they're also a threat. So the very same reasons that you're granted refuge in Canada are used against you to then decide your um, a terrorist threat. And that's happened a lot uh, with Kurdish and Iranian political dissenters. Um, and so I just, I've consistently seen, I've consistently seen the use of the national security state. And I just fundamentally do not believe that it can magically be transformed because I think about all the people right? Like leaving aside this new story of the Proud Boys, what is going to happen to all those people who are still going through deportation proceedings, right? So if, when I think about fighting white supremacy, I think about two things. One is fighting white supremacy includes fighting institutional white supremacy. So are we not only, are we going to fight Proud Boys and fight the ways in which the state is whiteness, right? Is that like less important to people? Um, because it's easy. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important to target the Proud Boys, right? But we can't make them an exception. We have to we have to fight in the everyday forms of violence as well. Um, so for me, I say, you know, join those struggles, right? Join the struggles against police violence. Join the struggles for housing. Those are all fights against white supremacy as well. Um, and then in terms of, you know, so it's not splashy, right? It's not a quick fix, but it is what we need to do to actually ensure that our communities are safe. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the more kind of amplified um, violent extremists, you know, for me, it really is the same. And again, I draw a lot of parallels from having worked in the sector of gendered violence for a long time. There is no immediate quick fix to that, right? It is dismantling white supremacy. It's people doing the work of challenging white supremacy as they see it on the rise. You know, all these members of Proud Boys, someone knows them. Someone has watched the process of their radicalization and their Nazification, right? Where are those early interventions? Who is doing that work? Um, and that's the kind of things, right? In our schools, for example, um, and in our neighborhoods, 
what are we doing to ensure that we're not kind of at the tipping point um, where people are enacting violence? And again, you know, I just, those people were known in the same way that people knew who members of the KKK were. Or for that matter, I mean, whenever we're talking about um, terrorists who are Muslim, it's always, well, why won't imams take responsibility for these people? Why won't every Muslim in the world take responsibility for these people? And yet when it's white supremacists, it's not Christians who need to take responsibility. It's not, it's not priests. Mm-hmm. It's not political parties who stoke these people with a wink and a nudge. It's, uh, it's nobody's fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently yeah, they're no, sui generis. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they're lone wolves, right? Who yeah. aren't connected to each other, who aren't, you know, uh, who aren't training all around the world, who aren't on these platforms, you know, and I, I do remember there was a story. Um, I believe it was in, it was either in CBC or the guardian, which are two very different outlets but, um, <laughs> that found that one of, um, of the countries where people most frequented particular white supremacist online platforms, Canada was in the top 10. Right. And so, yeah, you know, who's checking out, who in their household is on these platforms. Well, and, and it is truly everywhere. And I mean, we see it and the conservative party right now, I think bears a special responsibility to contribute to rooting out these folks. I mean, I was just writing about this recently Mm. and I make the argument, look, the conservative party of Canada is not an extremist far right party. Aaron O'Toole is not an extremist uh, right wing figure, but for reasons that that go back years, far right folks, some of them feel like they have a home in the conservative party of Canada. And Mm -hmm. if those folks think that you're their party, I've got news for you. You are their party. It's not Mm -hmm. despite what you might say. And I wonder what, what role political parties, especially on the right have in pushing back against this, uh, both in word and deed. I mean, there's something specific that political parties and politicians uh, outside of their capacity as, as, as government as for those who are in government can be doing. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly they stoke those fears on the far right and far and right wing parties, you know, presumably I've never been to one of their meetings, but they're you know (laughs) sitting around bantering um, and sanctioning or promoting, you know, right wing extremist ideologies. So absolutely they have a responsibility. And I think for all of us in Canada and, you know, of course, particularly, white Canadians, I just have this kind of like fundamental question, which is, you know, why is the word terrorism more jarring to you than white supremacy? Like what about, oh, proud boys are terrorist somehow invokes and mobilizes one to action more than the proud boys are white supremacists, right? Like, cause ultimately that to me goes to the heart of the question, which is, you know, terrorism and counterterrorism have always been invoked to inflame um, and to target. But at its core, is white supremacy not already a terrorizing enough and hateful enough and violent enough ideology that you want to root that out instead of focusing on the kind of perception? Well, not perception, but, you know, but focusing on the framework of extremism and terrorism. Um, and that that's what kind of guts me, right, is like. What, what is so much, why is terrorism um, more of a palatable framework to mobilize liberals and social Democrats who are white into action rather than white supremacy itself? 
It's a very good question. I mean, is it because we have, for what, for different reasons, created as a as a category of other that allows us to sort of drop people into it and do what we please to them? And and I guess the question then becomes, well, why isn't white supremacist that that category? And I perhaps that comes back to the fact that we deployed that category against black and brown people in post nine eleven, and now we're just sort of porting it over. Mm. I'm trying to. I mean, that's you've, you've got me thinking. I, I find that very jarring, that question. Yeah, and I, I don't have the answer, right? And I think it is because, and that, again, goes to that root of that, where I think terrorism as a label has always created an othering effect, which then leads to the earlier point, which is if it has a fundamentally othering effect that is underwritten by race, can it actually work to tackle white supremacy? And we always, and I'll close on, out on this point because we're coming to time, but we always seem to think, and this is maybe a theme, that we'll just give up a little bit of our civil liberties, quote unquote, ours, because it's theirs. You know, it's not ours. We're actually giving up this, the white supremacists' civil liberties or the quote unquote terrorist civil liberties. We're not giving up our civil liberties. And we don't expect that that's going to rebound on us. And yet time and time again, it seems to do precisely that. I mean, is, is this another thing that's just going to end up rebounding on us? Then six months or you know, five years from now, we're going to say, oh, my, well, we didn't see that coming. Who could have predicted? Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Know, the, you know, that old joke. I, 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 yeah, I voted for the leopard uh, eats your face off party, but I never thought a leopard would eat my face off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, that's just it, right? Is in these moments of of crisis as we've long been warned, um it's going to happen that these kinds of impacts are are permanent. Um and they will be normalized. And I think it's just so worrying because for decades people have been fighting back against the national security state and to now suddenly have it be legitimized in a whole new era where so many people um who are doing so have not even been subjected to it is um, it's very naive and, you know, quite dangerous. That permanence point really rings true to me. I mean, it it reminds me of maybe counterintuitively Ronald Reagan. I think it was Reagan sort of quipped that the closest thing to eternal life was a government program. Mm. I mean, of course he was criticized in the welfare state, but we could turn that around and apply to the national security state just as well. I suspect, right. Yeah. As you mentioned, these things are, are very difficult to, dismantle once they've been built they create a sort of logic and self-sustaining lobby on their own once they've been created right once they become an apparatus and and a category of thinking it becomes really hard to dismantle that yeah that's exactly right and you know it's not really going to you know it's just it's impossible to assume that somehow the state's going to give itself less funding like that's just never happened like police right yeah (laughs) the police is not going to give themselves more money um you know and that already happened right in the post 9-11 climate anti-terror legislation was subjected to sunset clauses right and so that you know we were told in post 9-11 like this is a state of emergency this will just be happening for a few years and even though you know the original anti-terrorism act had a sunset clause the state didn't, the national security state didn't roll back after that state of emergency. It just reinvented itself with new laws and continued to gain resources, right? So when it comes to like the actual infrastructure um, that sanctions the national security state, that will continue to build if we continue to give it cover. And yet we we continue to resist, right? What else, what, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. 
Well, that, that brings us to time. I, I mean, I could talk about this for days, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, we've, we've, we've moved across quite a bit of territory and I very much appreciate it. So let me first say thank you uh, to you, uh, Harsha Walia. And as always, uh, to the folks who make this podcast possible, my producer, Mira Ahmad, and uh, Aaron Reynolds, who makes us all sound so much better, especially myself, primarily myself, I should say. He does wonders, and I, I appreciate, um, again, uh, every, uh, every bit of effort they make, which is not inconsiderable. So thanks once more to you, uh, Harshavalia, and to everyone for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.